This morning we start with verse 9, go through verse 16. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Is what you need from God what you want from God? For many, the answer is no. Some want God to disappear. They prefer a world of randomness and chaos because they recognize that in such a world, There's no basis for morality. They can do whatever they want, live however they want. There's no standard by which they could be judged. Most want God to disappear most of the time, but to be available in a pinch. They, too, want to live according to their own standards, but they've come to realize there are some situations in life that are just too big for them. Situations from time to time that require supernatural intervention. They need to keep God on retainer so that when nothing else works, he can be called upon to give them what they want. Over the years, I've given the America doomsday crowd, the alarmists, a pretty hard time. I feel like I've been told too many times that this is the last free election we'll ever have. I've seen too much hope, even idolatrous hope, placed in political candidates. And even if the worst dystopian nightmares are realized, is not God still on the throne? This world is not and will not ever be my home. But that is not to say I think all is well in America. Indeed, I believe the the collapse of the American empire is rapidly approaching. In world history, what we're experiencing is certainly not unprecedented. Is precedented a word? It's not unprecedented. The erosion of civil liberties, the expansion of totalitarian state, the celebration of rampant immorality, these are far from unique to our times. But in the history of this young country, we have never before seen times quite like these. Now, it's no surprise to those closest to me that it was baseball's all-star game being taken away from Atlanta that solidified this conviction in my mind. I love baseball. Voting 
is a significant and, in this country, inalienable right. We should never want to see anything done that prevents anyone who is lawfully able to vote to be able to exercise that right. But for passing a law that, upon careful study, seems very unlikely to create actual harm for low-income and minority people, Major League Baseball was pressured to take away our city's hosting of the All-Star Game. The effect of that is that $45 million will be lost to the city. Much of that spent in Atlanta's restaurants and hotels supporting the service workers who work in those places. So for passing a law that likely will not harm low-income and minority people, Atlanta received a sanction that absolutely will harm them. That's not justice. Of course, that's not the first and by far not the most egregious example of the things going wrong in our country. We have cars plowing into police officers because of the expansion of a violent and wicked religion in our land. Human trafficking, pornography, and Atlanta's now infamous massage parlors denigrate and exploit the most vulnerable among us. Mass shootings are happening regularly for all kinds of causes. Beyond that, we have the cancel culture now in full effect. Amazon won't sell books that even thoughtfully explain biblical and right understandings of gender and sexuality. Companies who aren't actively funding the abortion industrial complex receive boycotts and public shaming. College professors are forced to choose between their principles and their job security. And I don't think students have it any easier. And Sennacherib is at the gates. The Assyrian armies have surrounded us. Our fortifications are collapsing. Our military strength is all gone. Our brothers to the north have already fallen. And the downfall of our nation is at hand. Okay, that last paragraph wasn't about us. That's what Micah's countrymen are facing here in Micah 6. In the first half of the chapter, Micah sets the scene of the people coming to the mountain, to the temp- coming up to the temple to seek God's help and favor. They're in a time of crisis. Their nation is collapsing around them. And while they were still practicing the motions of religion, it had been a long time since they'd honored Yahweh with their lives. But now... They've got nothing else, no one else to turn to. Only his help can save them. So in last week's passage, they wondered, what will it take to get God on our side? Offerings of expensive oil? We'll measure it in rivers. What if we sacrificed every lamb we can find or our firstborn? What will it take to get God's blessing? What will it take to turn things around? We need God's favor. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Now, people in that time and now want the blessing of God, for God to deliver them from trials and pain. Who doesn't want that? And God is willing and able to save. He delights in showing mercy. But if that's what we want from God, there is something we first need. His word. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord cries to the city. They came to the temple to petition God. But Micah, God's mouthpiece, is standing in their way. 
And here, instead of using the standard prophetic introduction that he's used all throughout this book of Micah, Micah's opening here is like a boom of thunder that stops them in their tracks. The literal Hebrew is the voice of Yahweh. It cries out. This is what they need. One pastor says, nothing determines the fate and well-being of a city more than its attitude toward the voice of God. Of all the voices in a city, this is the one most needed. Apart from God's voice, we cannot interpret reality correctly. And if you don't understand what's happening, you can't persevere through it. Our nation appears caught in a descent into madness and hell. But God's concern is not with nations. It's with his people. Yes, in the Old Testament, the locus of his people was the nation, Israel. But from these events, from Moses to Malachi to John the Baptist, these events in Micah's lifetime, it all points to a more complete people of God that God is bringing to himself, the church. Though I'm very grateful to live in this country, and I hope you are too, we should also know that God is not concerned with saving America. God is concerned with saving a people for the glory of his son from every tribe, tongue, and nation. In Micah's day, God was not concerned with saving the nation of Israel. In fact, on account of their covenant breaking, he would not save the nation of Israel. God was always concerned with saving true Israel, Abraham's sons and daughters, not by birth, but by faith. But, and this is key to this passage, the people God desires to save then and now do live in nations and cities. And that's where his voice needs to be. Micah has insisted all throughout this book that the word of God needs to go forth to where the people are. In their homes, where they work, in the streets, in the marketplace, the word of God needs to go forth. And for some, that word will be judgment. It will clarify the nature of the calamity that has come upon them. For others, those exact same words are received as a call to repentance. Micah told them what God requires, justice and mercy toward their fellow man as a display of genuine love for God. And some will hear that call, repent of their sin and cast themselves upon the Lord. But some will hear it and keep going their own way. Yet everyone needs to hear it. This year, Many people are coming back to church on Easter for the first time since COVID-19 began. But even in years prior, we know there are many, especially in the South, who consider themselves Christians yet rarely participate in the word and worship of God. One of my seminary professors called these the birth and resurrection fellowship. They show up on Christmas and Easter. So this one morning of the year, Easter morning, Many preachers have an audience not unlike Micah's. His audience called themselves Israel. Yet in their day-to-day life, they mostly ignored the God of Israel. But now, here they are, on this one day, impending calamity. And here they are at the temple, wanting the Lord's favor. But what do they need? 
They need to hear something they've forgotten. Our nation and our cities have also forgotten. Many of our churches have forgotten, and some who say they're Christians have forgotten. They've forgotten that to get what they want from God, they must begin first with what they need to hear his voice. Another pastor said it well, the city is deaf to the voice of the Lord, for the people have forgotten that it is the greatest privilege to hear God's word. The ministry of Micah took place over decades, and he was only one of God's many prophets for his people. Time and time again, God pleaded with his people to repent. He threatened judgments designed to wake them up. He sent very real, terrifying judgments to show them the severity of the situation. This was the rod of verse 9. This is how they were to remember him who appointed it. He told them what was evil. He told them what was good. But instead of turning from the evil and toward the good, Israel broke covenant with God again and again. God said that love for him materializes, is made visible in justice and mercy toward our fellow man. And in these verses, we see how Israel fails on both counts. Verses 10 through 12 are a one-two punch of their failure. In 10 and 11, God charges Israel with dishonesty in their business dealings. And then in verse 12, that they use violence and lies to deny justice to their victims. So they cheat them, and then they threaten them or rig the court so that they can't receive justice. Can I forget deeds like these, God asks? Of course he can't. To overlook this kind of evil is to share in the guilt of those who do it. Not that those who practice this evil admit they're guilty of evil. After all, this is just how business is done. Everyone skims a little off the top. Everyone underreports on their taxes. Equity swaps are a sophisticated trading instrument. Bankruptcy's legal. Why not use it? And Yahweh, who sees all, asks, Can I forget? The truth is, and another preacher said this well, as secular society rewrites its rules, God refuses to amend his own. You see, the culture is rewriting its rules as we speak. We see some of this clearly and grumble about it. The redefining concepts like gender and marriage and life itself, changing the rules of liberty and free speech and love. But there's a kind they do that we also do, and I don't hear us grumbling about that. We amend our rules by making excuses for our sin. We make excuses that point right back to the world We say, well, these are the things you have to do. These are the kinds of compromises you have to make just to get by in a culture like this. And what else could we do? So Micah speaks for Yahweh. Knowing that what a people like this need is God's voice, Micah is God's voice, and he says, this is wrong. Scant measures. Wicked scales, deceitful weights, violence, and lies. This is wrong, and God cannot ignore it. God told us that how we treat others is the manifestation of our love for him. 
But sometimes we don't like what this means. We've got to be willing to fail, to lose, to be taken advantage of, to miss out, to be inconvenienced. If that's the cost of doing justice, loving mercy, and walking humbly with God, we've got to be willing to lose. But are we willing even to seem out of touch with the world when that's what it takes for God's truth, to miss out on the latest trend or entertainment or business activity? Michael wants us to know that it's better to suffer the world's scorn and punishment than to suffer God's. And like the accusation, this sanction is a one-two punch as well. Verse 13 is this general condemnation of God, while verses 14 and 15 get into the real details of God's curse against them. It seems to me the effect of this curse take two forms. One of them is quite direct. God sent specific calamity for Israel's sin and disobedience. We have the records of this in the scriptures and elsewhere. In this particular case, he sent the Molnar family nightmare. He sent stomach bugs so that though they eat, they could never be satisfied. He sent droughts and wars and other calamities to prevent them from ever having a successful harvest. Or when they did and they would store it up, people would come and take it from them. They wanted to do what people always want to do apart from God, to store up stuff as their security and their joy. More food, more oil, more wine. Tear down these storehouses and build bigger ones. Then I will be content. Then I will be safe. Then I can say to myself, I have many good things stored. I've saved enough for many years. Rest, eat, drink, and enjoy life. But we know how that ends. One commentator said, the sustainer of the creation will not sustain those who denied sustenance to their neighbor. Cursing them to futility, God emphatically repeats the formula five times. You will, but you will not. Whatever they do, it won't work. Whatever they pursue, it won't satisfy them. One way or another, in death, if not sooner, money will fail to secure our souls. Material prosperity does not ensure peace. And to be clear, it's not the what that's the problem here. It's the how. God says he strikes them with a grievous blow, but it's not because they have stuff. He strikes them because, one, they got and kept that stuff through dishonest means. They cheated and they stole and they used violence to get what they had. And two, they did this at the expense of loving their neighbor, the very people they were supposed to show justice and mercy. And three, accepting that trade-off proves you have no love for God. We need God's voice Because the why of what we do matters. If we want stuff because we think it will make us secure or because we think we deserve it or because we will think it will make us happy, then how we will get it is the same way the world goes about getting it. But if what we want is to glorify God and to love our neighbors, including through and with stuff, then we go about getting it much differently. 
But as I said, I think this kind of curse takes another form as well. I think we can see in this judgment more generally why the world is so completely unsatisfied. Those who have great wealth, great power, unthreatened lives are still unsatisfied. Although there is real poverty in this country, much of what we call poverty today is unrecognizable as such to other places and times in the world. And we also have enormous wealth. Yet so many are not satisfied. A few years ago, a friend of mine bought a new TV, just as the big flat screen TVs were becoming more common and somewhat affordable. And he had the thing mounted on the wall of his house. And since I knew he was really looking forward to it, I called him to ask him how it was. Disappointing, he said. Not sharp or clear. After spending all of that money, it's just really unsatisfying. So I offered to go over to his house to see if there was anything I could do. Kids, take note. This is the kind of tech support we need and expect from you now. I get to his house, and I quickly saw two problems. One was not his fault. The guy who sold him the TV had not sold him an HDMI cable or even told him what it was. So he had this fancy new HDTV hooked up with these old analog signal cables that were never going to work well. But when I saw the other source of his discontent, I had to bite my lip. To prevent damage and scratches on the screen while it's being hung, there was this translucent protective film that covered the entire screen. And he didn't realize that the film was removable. And so we removed it, we took that off, we plugged in a digital cable, and voila, the picture was amazing. Why was he dissatisfied before? Because he didn't experience it the way it was intended to be used. Israel had strong city walls and a good military. They had farms producing lots of produce. They had magnificent vineyards. But nothing they had satisfied them. So they were always scheming for more. But what they lacked for satisfaction could not be obtained by the schemes because what they lacked was the blessing of God's voice. What they needed was to hear from God. They needed to understand the stuff and reality itself. They needed to remember who made the stuff, where it came from, and how it was supposed to be used. Only then could they be truly satisfied. Whether career or family or power and respect, the same is always true. To be satisfied with whatever we have, we must first hear the voice of God and understand the reality around it. Israel's offense is summarized in verse 16's reference to Omri and Ahab. It's hard to imagine anything more insulting God could have said to Judah, the southern kingdom, than to compare them to the most infamous and wicked kings of Israel's northern kingdom. But it's true. Following God's voice would have produced justice and mercy. The formula is pretty simple. Instead, they followed the playbook of King Omri and his wicked son Ahab. Selfish, evil business practices with violence and injustice to defend them. This would be like God coming to us and showing us all the ways we act like the world. God taking the person that you despise the most for their wickedness 
and him making a a chart for you on a whiteboard with your name and with their name. And all you can see and think about are the differences, the way you act and think differently from that person. And those are true. But what if God made a list of all the ways that you think and act and speak just the same? The things that we say, the entertainment we choose, the methods we use to get what we want. And if God were to confront us with such a list, would we point outward at the world with excuses and justifications? We'd point to others? Would we think, this voice isn't what I need? Or would we recognize that it's exactly what we need? The word of God painful as it is for us at times, is exactly what we need. Would we have enough humility not to look and point and blame the world and others, but to look at our own heart, mind, soul, and strength and root out the ways where we are failing to love? The proud southern kingdom had become just like their wicked northern brothers. Claiming to be different, claiming to be righteous, they had forgotten the privilege of hearing God's word. And just followed in the covenant-breaking footsteps of Ahab and Omri. I want to read a powerful thought from Pastor Rick Phillips. He said, Idolatry begins as an attitude we pick up from the world. A way of looking at the world along with its ideas of happiness. If you expose your mind to such counsel, you will be pulled into the cruel pragmatism of Omri the cowardly compromises of Ahab, and the lurid violence of Jezebel. It is offensive to God when the world indulges in wickedness, but it is intolerably offensive when his people give themselves over to the evils of the world. The world doesn't know what it needs. The world doesn't know why it's so unsatisfied. And remember, when I say the world... I'm not talking about something way out there. The world is all around you. Your neighbors, your unbelieving family, your co-workers, they don't know why things never ultimately or fully satisfy. They know they have great things, great stuff, or a great job, or great relationships, or people who care about them. They acknowledge these things as good, but they can't figure out why they always fall short. Why they ultimately fail. And that's why the world has been and ever will be shouting, Give us Barabbas. It has no idea what it needs. The only thing that can ultimately satisfy is Christ. And the only way any of these things, great as they are, can ever satisfy is if we are first satisfied in him. And so what the world needs from us is Christ-likeness. People who have listened to God's voice and are changed by that voice. People who apply God's word in their lives. How? Show them justice. Show them mercy. And show them that he, the word made flesh, is what we all need. Our confidence that they can be satisfied in Christ is not just because we are. We know with certainty 
that they and we can be fully satisfied in Christ because God has told us that he is fully satisfied in Christ. Look at the righteous anger in these judgments. This must be satisfied or God is not God. He cannot forget sin. He cannot sweep it under the rug. He cannot pretend it's no big deal. And deep down, none of us really want him to, not the sins that were against us. His holiness will not allow it. The wages of sin is death. But in Christ, for those who repent and call on him in faith, God's wrath against against sin was fully satisfied. And it's confusing sometimes because that satisfaction and our following of Jesus doesn't make for an easy life. The faithful Israelites in Micah's day, there were some. They were experiencing the same calamity as the wicked evildoers around them. Many of those things are externally even harder on those seeking to be faithful in the crucible. We may need to fail in business in order to honor God. We may need to miss out on opportunities and enjoyments that should be ours. Walking humbly with our God is no easy task, but it is the only path to satisfaction. In one of those great moments of tense honesty in the Gospels, Peter gets it. When many of his disciples heard Jesus teaching, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? I always identify with the crowds. (laughs) But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. And so after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of life. There's nowhere else we can go. It's not that it's easy. It's not that it's always pleasant. It's that there's nowhere else we can go. He has the words of life. And whether or not America can be saved, I do not know. But I know that there are many in America, in Atlanta, in Dunwoody, that God desires to save and is calling to himself. And they don't know what they need. But we do. They need God's word. They don't know what a privilege it is to hear it. And they will not know unless our experience of God's word manifests for them in justice and mercy. Unless our lives make it look like something worth hearing. Christ was not raised just so that we end here one day a week can have a little foretaste of heaven as we await a better world that is to come. That is a great result and we rejoice in it. But it is not enough. Because Christ was raised to be the Prince of Peace and the King of Glory and the Lord of all creation. And what we gain in here by the word of God has the power to transform what's out there. 
filled with the grace of God in worship, we do justice and we love kindness. So go do that. Be a student and a teammate who lives differently because you walk humbly with God. Be a spouse who loves differently. Parent who nurtures differently because you walk humbly with God. An employee, a boss, a chairman, an HOA president, a grandmother, a brother, a sister, a friend. Do it differently because you walk humbly with God. We can't give the world what it wants. But by the spirit of Christ in us, the living word, we can be used by God to give it what it needs. And that is so much better.